Luke Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're thinking about great Christmas journeys. And uh, we thought last week about the journey of Mary uh, to see her cousin Elizabeth, and uh, this morning we're thinking about a different journey, uh, beginning in chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel in verse 1. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this texting was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And, went, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. Something, there's something very romantic in our minds about the nativity story. We have this image of the birth of Christ that has far more to do with Victoriana than it has to do really with the Bible and with the events and the reality of the events themselves. And romance by its nature it tends to color our thinking. It tends to paint a cleaner or a softer uh, picture uh, of, of those things that we see unfolding. And, and this is no more clear than in this journey that is taken by Mary and Joseph from Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem. And you know, as we accompany them along the way this morning, I want us to understand something of the harsh reality of that trip, very foreign from the nativity play. Next Sunday evening, Lord willing, or Sunday afternoon, Lord willing, our children will be performing a little nativity play, and we'll have all of the flavors of any nativity play, I should imagine. But that has colored our thinking, and it makes us think of the nativity as something warm and very you know, wholesome and very uh, affecting. But in, in reality, it was a very tough uh, time in the life of Mary and Joseph. Now, some 700 years before these events, the prophet Micah had predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. He says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And little did he know. And little do we really understand the difficulties that would surround the coming of the Messiah to Bethlehem. Now, as we saw last week, Mary was the woman chosen of God to bear the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was a problem. Mary lived in Nazareth, and Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ, was 90 miles south of her home. And so somehow, in order to fulfill the prophecy, God had to get Mary from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, of course, he could have simply commanded Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem, and I'm sure they would have done that. You know, they seem to have been very godly people. They seem to have been obedient servants of the Lord, and I have no doubt that they would have made that move. But God chose to do something else, 
And what he did was far more instructive than merely uh, having them obey a commandment. You see, what we'll find here is something that will help us in understanding God's dealings in our own lives. <coughs> so I want to take some observations this morning from this text about this great Christmas journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the first thing I want you to realize is it was a difficult journey. You know, when we look at Mary and Joseph and how they're depicted in children's storybooks and Sunday school materials, in our, on our Christmas cards, in nativity plays and in other arenas, they're usually presented as this kind of cute sort of couple, soft-featured, rosy-cheeked, you know, Mary riding on a donkey that has big dark whirlpool uh, eyes and they're seen traversing across this nice flat starry uh, plain. But nothing could have been further from the truth. Now, I want to ask you a question and this is particularly helpful, I guess, for those ladies who have had children. Can you imagine what it would be like to ride a donkey uh, for 90 miles? You know, that's, you know, most of us, if we've ridden a donkey at all, have probably only ridden one uh, a few feet, you know. Uh, maybe on the beach sometime you, rid, you rode one maybe 100 meters, and that was enough. Uh, but, you know, 90 miles on a donkey is, is a tough journey for anybody to make. That's like riding a donkey from Point Pass to Balik, uh, out in the west of Fermanagh, right on the edge of the border with Donegal. That's the kind of distance that you're talking about riding a donkey on. Now, can you imagine being heavily pregnant and riding a donkey? Now, that puts a whole new, a whole new spin on it. You know, I remember uh, years ago, and I shared this actually on Wednesday night, uh, I was given a car when I was pastoring in Dublin, and it was a death trap. The car was an absolute death trap. Had no horn, had lights that went out in the middle of the night, had no springs. No springs. And Hazel was heavily pregnant with our Michaela when I was driving that car. And every bump in the road, she was complaining. You know, she was grumbling. Can you not slow down? David, there's a bump, there's a bump. And you'd hear her complaining. Well, can you imagine what it'd be like if I'd put her on a donkey? The kind of complaining that you would hear, would have heard. You understand this, the roads were not smooth. They weren't asphalt highways such as we enjoy, but they were stony pathways. The terrain was not flat as is portrayed on Christmas cards, but it was extremely mountainous. In fact, the ascent up to Bethlehem would be something akin to the, the path going up to Sleeve Downard. Now, are you ready for the real shocker? And I'm going to share some shockers with you this morning. Here is the real shocker this morning. Morning. You look into this account and ask yourself, where in this scripture is there any mention of Mary riding on a donkey? Do you see any donkeys in this particular scripture? There's no donkey spoken of. Where did the donkey come from? We imposed the donkey into the story because we didn't like the thought of Mary walking all the way 90 miles to Bethlehem, a wife's pregnant, uphill and down valley. So we, we put that into the story. You see, here's the real shocker. Are you going to get this? If there was a donkey, guess who would have ridden it? Joseph. That was the culture of the time. Joseph would have rode the donkey and Mary would have walked alongside the donkey. You see, that was simply how it was. Now, if that raises your eyebrows, that's because you're a Westerner, all right? And you and I would never think 
Well, to be honest, our wives would never let us away with it. Uh, but, but, uh, but we never think of, uh, of allowing your wife to walk while you rode the donkey, particularly uh, when she's pregnant. Now, it's quite possible that Joseph did allow her uh, to ride the donkey, perhaps. Maybe he did walk alongside, leading a donkey with Mary on it. But if he had done so, he would have been the laughing stock of Israel. You see, to have your wife ride while you walk, is contrary to the customs. It's like that moment, guys, and you've all been there, haven't you? When you're with your wife shopping and she utters these terrible words, here, hold my handbag. <laughs> That's the worst thing you can do to your husband. And when, when my wife does that, she hands me her handbag. You know, I'm always kind of trying to figure out how best to hold it so as to look as manly as possible. <laughs> hold it out like this. Look at me. Or, or else I hide it surreptitiously behind my leg. I'm not holding the handbag. <laughs> and I wait for her to come. Because there's an embarrassment there. There's a cultural embarrassment, at least there used to be, of men holding handbags. And that's the idea here. There would have been a cultural, cultural embarrassment for Joseph to walk alongside his wife while she sat on the donkey. So the scene now, if there is a donkey, is of Joseph riding the donkey and a heavily pregnant Mary walking behind, up the hills and down the fields, treading rough stone roads for about 90 miles or so. And for her, that had to have been an arduous journey. In fact, everything surrounding the, the, uh, her life with Christ is, is a struggle. There's difficulty in it for her. Look in verse 34 and 35 of this text. It says, And Simeon blessed them. This is, uh, this is when the Lord has been born. And uh, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said, said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So here's this, uh, this prophecy that is made on the, on the uh, courts of the temple, in which Mary is told that a sword shall pierce her soul. And you know, when you look at his, her life in relation to the Lord, you look at the surroundings of his birth, it was tough. It was difficult. You know, what mother wants to give birth to her firstborn child in, under those circumstances? In a manger, you know, in a, in a stable, if you want to call it that. Uh, you know, in a, in, in a farming surrounding, which isn't necessarily uh, the, perhaps the best place. It's certainly not a, a maternity ward kind of environment. It's a tough place to have a child. And then you think about the events of his life, particularly when he goes into his ministry. And you see that Mary is concerned about him. She's concerned about the things that people are saying about him. You know, she comes and she wants to speak to him. And he says, who is my mother? Who's my father? But he does the, the will of my father in heaven. And, and it's almost like he disowns her. You know, it's tough. And then, of course, she comes to the cross and she has to watch her own son, her firstborn son, being put to the cross and dying a bloody and horrible death that day upon Mount Calvary. And her heart must have been broken. And of course, then the Lord utters these words. And he says to Mary and John, you know, behold thy son, behold thy mother. Making John responsible for her care. Putting her into, into, his, into his life for safekeeping. It was tough. And you know, 
That's what was predicted. And that's what happened. And in contrast, you and I, we don't expect the Christian life to be tough. We don't expect things to be difficult. We expect the Christian life to be easy. We expect it to be sunshine and roses. I don't know if you ever heard that song by the cathedrals, that southern gospel song. But I think it's one of the worst songs that was ever sung. I used to sing a sad song filled with gray skies and rain. I used to sing of no future, sad days with only pain. Now as I look back upon them, seems to me that I find there were days in the valley, now I've left them all behind. Now it's sunshine and roses, only a thorn now and then. Cool streams, warm breezes, since Jesus took my hand. Green meadows and laughter, hope within the crumbling time. It's sunshine and roses, only a thorn now and then. Do you think that's how it was for Mary? I think it was just sunshine and roses. You know, once that the Annunciation had been given, that's not what we're reading here. We're reading she has an arduous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We're reading that she's concerned for her son and the abuse he's taken and the criticisms he's receiving during his lifetime. We read that she stands at the cross and there she's weeping for the, for the, for the events that are unfolding before her very eyes. She sees the cruelty that's being exercised upon the Lord Jesus. It wasn't sunshine and roses. Listen, it wasn't sunshine and roses for Job when he lost all of his children children and his entire business in one day when he lost his health it wasn't sunshine and roses there were times when Job said I want to die there were times when Job says why is God doing this to me it wasn't sunshine and roses for the apostle Paul the man who gave us you know so many books of our New Testament 13 and all if I remember correctly 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 tells us his testimony and it's anything but like that southern gospel song he doesn't sing I used to sing a song song filled with race guys and rain and he doesn't go on and say well you know those things are all left behind here's what he says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24 of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one three times was I beaten with rods once I was stoned thrice I suffered shipwreck a night and a day I've been in the deep in journeyings often in perils of waters in perils of robbers in perils by my own countrymen in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. It's all sunshine and roses. No, it's anything but sunshine and roses. It's tough. Sometimes it's tough being a Christian. Sometimes it's tough doing the will of God. And that's what we find in the nativity story. This move from Bethlehem to Nazareth wasn't a, a one and a half hour trip on a car traveling 70 miles an hour down the motorway. It was a long, difficult walk with a woman who was in a great deal of discomfort, who was fearful that she was going to give birth at any moment on this open road as she hobbled over the cobbles and the stones and the rocks and made her way to that southern city of Israel. But I'll tell you this, Job, despite all of his difficulties, wasn't a quitter. And Paul, despite all his difficulties, wasn't a quitter. And Mary wasn't a quitter. You see, she didn't just embrace the blessings from the Lord. She accepted burdens from the Lord. She took both from the hand of the Lord. Remember the words of Job to his wife? 
What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? Shall we not receive evil? So are we only going to take good days from God? Are we not going to take bad days if God allows them to come our way? Mary was willing to face the difficulties in order to secure the blessings. And thank God she did, for had she not done that, where would we be? Where would you be? But here's my question to us this morning on a practical level. How do we bear up when things aren't going our way? How do you bear up when there's difficult days in your life? You know, does your spiritual life hit the skids? Does your spiritual life bring you down to the dumps? Uh, do you whine and do you complain and do you think, well, I'm, I'm going to turn back now. Uh, uh, this isn't, isn't how I anticipated the Christian life. I'm ready to quit. I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm ready just to turn back on Jesus because it's not all sunshine and roses. Do you go on? Will you reach your Bethlehem or will you turn back on God? Your sister just came to the pulpit a moment or two and told us about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and about the pastors and and how exhausted they are. And we can understand that. Two years pastoring in a war has got to be tough. Let me tell you something. Pastoring in lockdown was tough. Pastoring in a war such as that has got to be tough. You say, well, what's a pastor to do in that situation? He's to do the same thing you're to do when life gets tough for you. Here's what Paul says. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing about a good soldier. A good soldier digs in on the hard days. You know, last week the man went off to uh, the Psalm Museum out in Newton Arts for our fellowship day out. And, uh, you know, it was interesting as we walked around the the trenches as they were set up for us to experience to, to, to a very minor degree. Uh, but, you know, we walked through those trenches, and, and you thought about those boys, and they were boys, 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, 18 years of age, coming from Northern Ireland and, and other parts of Ireland and, and marching off to France and thinking it was a big adventure and thinking they'd be back in time for Christmas, not realizing that war was going to go on for four or five years. And suddenly they're up to their, up to their middle and up to their knees in muddy water and there's rot, rats running around the trenches and there's bodies uh, floating there and, they, and they've got all of this decay and, and all of this disaster around them. You know, I'm sure many of them thought, you know what, I'd like to go home right now. I'd like to go back to Ireland. I'd like to go back to my mommy. I'd like to go back to my daddy. I'd like to go back to the farm. I'd like to sit down and have a warm meal. I'd like to sit by the fire on a, on a winter's evening and share stories with my relatives. But it isn't happening. Why? Because you're in war and you've got to endure hardness when you're in war. You've got to dig in if you're going to win the battle. And I want you to understand the Christian life isn't an easy journey. It wasn't an easy journey for Mary and Joseph, and it's not an easy journey for you or I. It's a difficult journey. It was a dictated journey. That's the second thing I want you to see. It was a journey demanded of them by the Roman government. Caesar Augustus, we're told, in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Luke, had ordered the taxation of the entire Roman Empire. And in order for that hap- to happen, it was necessary that people should go back to their, uh, to their homeland, back to their, uh, the, their, the place of their ancestry, where their roots were. And for Joseph, this meant going to Bethlehem, the home of his ancestors, and uh, that's where he hailed from. And of course, he was from the line of King David. 
Now, overall, the plan to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem was God, even if it meant moving the entire civilized world of that time uh, to accomplish it. It was in the fullness of time. That's what the Bible tells us in Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. And that's exactly what the Bible means. At this precise moment, God intended for Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem for the birth of the Lord Jesus. Now you think about this. This is a miracle of God. Because if that Roman emperor had made that decree three months earlier, Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. If he had made it three months later, Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. God knew exactly how long it was going to take to cut through the red tape and the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire uh, to make sure that there were officials appointed and stationed in Bethlehem in their place of duty. And when every detail had been finalized and things began to move, we discover that the plan was really God's plan all along. You see, it wasn't Augustine who got Mary to Bethlehem. It was God who did it. And the Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs in chapter 21. Look, sometimes, you know, if you're anything like me, sometimes we despair of politicians. And we despair of world leaders. And I'm sure people living in these times despaired of Augustus at times. And, you know, perhaps when they heard that they had to go back to their homeland and uproot everything and move many miles away and, and go there just for the purpose of a census or a survey that was put upon the heart of the Caesar, they were probably cursing the Caesar all the way and saying, what a waste of time this is. What a load of nonsense this is. Why have we got to go through all of these motions? But here's the thing I want you to understand. It was God that was moving upon this king's heart to call people to go back to their homeland. And sometimes we despair of the decisions government makes. Sometimes we despair of our politicians. Politics is a, is a dirty game, and, and part does strange things to many a man's moral compass. You know, we speak about de- democracy, the idea that, that the people rule. That's what the word democracy means, people rule. But increasingly, it seems that the people are overruled. At least that's how I feel many of the times. You know, you think about it in Northern Ireland. The vast bulk of people in Northern Ireland are opposed to abortion. And yet at the first opportunity, the Westminster government introduced an abortion bill that was so extreme that it puts us at the most liberal end of the abortion practice in all of Western Europe. We have the most extreme laws in that respect. Now, that is not something that the people of Northern Ireland wanted. That was not something that the politicians of Northern Ireland went out and appealed for in election time. But that was something we got, whether we want it or not. We aren't ruling. We're overruled. And you see the same thing even nationally now in the government in Westminster, this whole woke agenda you know, being pushed down our throats. You know, the Conservative Party didn't come to par on that. The Labour Party are not coming to par on that. But that's the direction of travel that we're going. And we're going to be overruled, it seems. But here's the thing. Every government and every politician is doomed to fail. But listen, nothing but nothing happens that God doesn't already know about it. Indeed, very often God is 
overruling the government of men. You see, Mary and Joseph must travel to Bethlehem, not because Augustus Caesar was on the throne, but because God was still on the throne. Friends, don't ever forget that. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in Israel, no matter what happens in Ukraine, no matter what happens in Northern Ireland, no matter what happens in these isles, no matter what happens, God is still on the throne and he's still at work in the affairs of men today. It was a difficult journey. It was a dictated journey. It was a demonstrative journey. Why were they going to Bethlehem? Well, obviously on a human level because Augustus decreed it. But on a spiritual level, it was part of Micah's prophecy. It was a fulfillment of that prophecy. It also has a great association with many of the heroes of Israelite history. If you look at, through the scriptures at Bethlehem, you'll find that Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried in Bethlehem. You'll find it was the hometown of Ruth. It was the birthplace of King David, uh, whose throne is to be established forever. It was the place where David was anointed by Samuel when the kingdom was transferred from Saul uh, to, to David and to his descendants. So the town of Bethlehem was a fitting place for the birth of the Messiah because it was laden with historical significance. But I want you to go to verse 7 and I want you to notice the housing. It says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we just heard from May and doing the children's talk and a very good job she did too. But, question, where is the innkeeper in this passage. Do you read anywhere there's an Because every time you hear the nativity story, you always have somebody who plays the innkeeper, don't you? Some kid gets the role of the innkeeper. And his job is to say there's no room in the inn. In fact, you usually have several innkeepers who all come out and go, sorry, there's no room here. Sorry, no room in this inn. No, no room in this. And then you finally get to the kindly innkeeper who says, I have a stable. You can, you can go there. You realize Bethlehem was a very small village in the time of Christ. I mean, a tiny, tiny village, smaller than Points Pass. And we make it sound like there was a Holiday Inn, and there was a travel lodge, and there was a Premier Inn, and there was, you know, all kinds of hotels you could go to. Uh, to That's not how this thing worked. There wasn't a hotel in the entire time. There wasn't a hotel. In fact, you would have stayed with relatives is what you would have done. You would have gone and stayed with some relatives of yours. So when it says there was no room in the inn, it's likely telling, telling us that basically their relatives were swamped with people who'd come back for the purpose of taxation. And, and so the Bible says there was, there was no room. The other thing you'll find here is there's, and we'll, we'll come to this in a moment, but there's, there's, no, there's no cows in this story. Uh, there are no, you know, there's no, well, there may be a donkey, but we think there probably isn't a donkey. There's no camels. And I hate to break your bubble on this, but there's definitely no little drummer boy. Okay? There is no little drummer boy in this story. Uh, those are figments of human imagination. Those are things we've thrown into the story, maybe to spice it up a little bit or make it more interesting for children uh, or whatever. So the Bible says there was no room for them. 
And yet as we consider that manger, it was, we could say, well, what a room for them. A manger, probably, uh, probably a house in a cave. You know, a manger isn't the room itself. You know, we sometimes talk about a manger. We think of it as being a stable. But the, the manger is not the stable. In fact, it's doubtful that it even was a stable. It's likely it's just a cave. And the manger is a feeding trough. A feeding trough for, for sheep. And so the Lord comes into this world having left the splendor of heaven his little body is laid into a feeding trough for a bed. That's what a manger is. And, and that's intensely predictive of his life of humility and, and even of his death where he humbled himself on the death, even the death of the cross. You picture his entire human experience. He was rejected from beginning to end. He, was, he humbled himself both in taking on human flesh and also in giving his body to the cross. He was, he was, he was rubbing shoulders with the lowest elements of society, born into the home of peasants. His friends were largely fishermen. You know, he was, here he's effectively born in a sheep shed, laid in a feeding trough. By the way, why say there's no cows here and no camels? Say, so what about the wise men? Read your Bible again. The wise men don't come to the manger. The wise men come to a house it's two years on from this moment. So the family's moved. You know, they didn't stand there, stay there in that cave for the next two years waiting for the wise men to come. No, she gave birth and they moved into more suitable accommodation. So there's no camels. There's only sheep. Why do I say that? Because the fields around Bethlehem were very special insofar as the shepherds who worked there raised sheep for the specific purpose of sacrifice. They weren't raising sheep in order to, uh, to uh, produce meat or wool primarily. They were raising sheep for the purposes of the temple. And so when the lamb was born, guess what they did with it? You ready for this? They wrapped it in swaddling clothes, those bandages that Mae was talking about a few moments ago. They wrapped the little sheep in swaddling clothes. Why did they do that? Because the sheep had to be without blemish. It had to be without spot. They couldn't afford it to get nicked or wounded in some way. And so they'd put these swaddling clothes on the newborn lambs to protect them so that they could bring them to the temple for sacrifice and the priest would look at them and say that this sheep was an acceptable sacrifice. What a picture this is of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. We could say that Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was as white as snow because when he comes into the world, the these shepherds or, or perhaps Joseph takes the swaddling clothes and he winds the body of Jesus up in those clothes and he's symbolizing that Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here he is the very outset of his life being set aside as the sacrificial Lamb. Now as we consider this particular great Christmas journey, I want to leave you with two overriding thoughts this morning. Number one, that God controls human affairs. In a world where men's hearts are failing them for fear, and that's where we live today. You know, people are afraid of everything right now with the, the rise in wars. People are suffering eco-anxiety, feeling like the sea is about to rise 
dear knows how many feet and swamp us all, if you believe that. People are terrified. But in a world where people have hearts that are filled with fear, isn't it freshly reassuring to know that God is in control? Nothing happens save God permits it. Indeed, in many cases, not only does God permit it, but God orchestrates it. God is pulling the strings. God's in control over our government. God is in control of our borders. God is in control of our future. God is in control of our lives. And whatever happens is part of the bigger picture of God. He is working everything out for our good and for his glory. Everything. Then the second thing is this. There's a price here for giving Jesus birth. It cost Mary. It wasn't a simple journey. And as the Lord enters our lives, we need to understand there's a cost attached. Being a Christian doesn't come cheap in the sense that there's no cost attachment. Salvation is free. But being a Christian, being a Christian costs. Because you've got to, you cannot give to the Lord that which costs you nothing. That's the lesson of David from the Old Testament. If you want to serve the Lord, it's going to cost you. If you're going to be involved in his service, there's going to be sacrifices. And that means you might have to endure some hardships. That means you might have to jump some hurdles. That means you might have to bridge some gaps. And though there will be burdens, there will also be blessings. And the blessings do far outweigh the burdens. But here's the, friend, here's the thing, friends. We mustn't grow weary in well-doing. We mustn't give up on the journey. It must have been very tempting for Mary, 10 or 20 miles into this journey, to say to her husband, you know what? Let's go back. I've had enough of this. But you can't do that. You've got to go to where the Lord will have you to be. And you can't give in to the temptation to turn back. We must go onward and upward, even as Mary and Joseph did, until we arrive at the place that God has appointed until we fulfill God's will for our lives. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going to rise and sing our conclusion.